It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 14 in our series for 2018, and today's date is Friday, May the 18th. And first of all, I talk to Johnny Cooper, the founder of www.thesuccessparty.com and one of the UK's most prolific growth coaches, helping other people's businesses grow and prosper. Johnny also shows coaches how to build their business and attract more clients. And then I talk to economist Saul Leslake, analysing how the Turnbull government is going to manage the politics of its latest budget. But first, let's talk to Johnny Cooper. Johnny Cooper, tell us about about the success party. Well, the success party is my uh, coaching platform uh, where I uh, invite other coaches and uh, trainers and therapists and consultants uh, to hang out with me and uh, get tips and strategies and tactics on uh, how to build their thriving practice without paid advertising. So how, how do you manage to do that? How did I manage to do that? Well, it's all about social engagement, Leon, these days, isn't it? And um, I, uh, I run a thriving Facebook group called Johnny Hates Marketing. Uh, we've got just over 3,600 members as we speak and growing every day. And uh, I, I show my clients how to, uh, how to use platforms like Facebook uh, and LinkedIn as well, depending on what their particular niche is. Uh, so they can just start engagement, hold conversations, uh, and uh, yeah, bring their goodness out to the world. And they that that works better than standard advertising. Well, I don't know about works better. I mean, for for most people um, in the coaching business, they're just not ready for advertising. Quite honestly, I mean, I, I describe a whole piece which I call before marketing. Um, I, I sometimes call it the three pillars of, of effortless marketing, which is you know really defining. Uh, accurately and, and tightly um, what it is you do so you know what your superpower is what you bring to the world uh, why we'd have to invent you if you didn't exist that kind of thing um, and so, so that that's the what the, the second pillar is the who you know who it's for tightly defining your audience and uh, you know developing a client avatar for who your ideal client is and uh, you know that that's one of the key things isn't it which um 
you know, the success of an advertising campaign stands or falls on, really. And, you know, there's so many coaches and therapists that haven't really got that nailed. So, you know, it's something that needs to be done early on before we can even think about marketing or, or you know, advertising. Um, so the, the first two pillars are what you do and, and who it's for. The third pillar is, is how you deliver it, you know, creating a, a signature program. Um, and I work with my clients to actually, you know, put together a delivery method, basically a program uh, which, uh, you know, is easy to sell, easy to understand, easy to, to describe to your ideal audience. And um, if you make that signature program, uh, you know, what we call a high ticket program, you know, so in the kind of 2000 to $5,000 range, then um, you, you don't really need paid advertising to kick that off. You just need to start conversations. You just literally need to go to social media, you know, build a, a modest presence for yourself and start hanging out where your ideal clients are, having identified them. And uh, I can tell you, you know, in my business, my Facebook group uh, is a greenhouse where I nurture relationships with my ideal clients. And uh, it spits out for me between three and five new clients every single week. So I haven't got to the stage yet where I feel I need a paid advertising campaign. I haven't got a product, I don't think, that necessarily lends itself to a paid advertising campaign. So my, my whole world is, is based on, you know, I don't enjoy marketing. Johnny hates marketing as I, as I come to the world and, and state categorically. <laughs> uh, so it's about simplifying things, you know, making, making marketing as simple as finding your next client, you know, starting the next conversation, building engagement and uh, bringing them on board. And, uh, you know, Facebook groups and LinkedIn are just perfect at the moment for doing that without paid advertising. How easily do coaches adjust to that? Well, most coaches that I deal with, um, and uh, you know, the, the, there's a bit of a bit of a discussion about this, I, I guess, uh, in a bit more depth, which I'll I'll go into in a minute. But most coaches are, are not ready for paid advertising, um, as I've said. You know, those three pillars are not in place, and uh, you know, the, the the wider piece about that is is understanding that the coaching industry if that's the right word uh, around the world is not particularly profitable for, for most of its practitioners um, I mean I saw a, a global survey just last year um, you know which had discovered that, that the average coaching revenue around the world is about 20,000 so dollars in the states pounds in the UK you know euros in Europe but you know between 20 and 25 grand 20 and 25 grand a year, yeah. So m m most coaches are, are not being successful at it. You know, they're probably pretty good at coaching when they're in front of clients, but they haven't cracked the code of client attraction by, by any means at all. And, you know, most of the people in my group are either just starting out, so they're free revenue, as you might say in business, uh, or they're just struggling, you know, to crack the code and, and go from one client to the next client. So, you know, far from needing paid advertising, um, what most coaches need these days is an understanding of who they are, who they do it for, and, and how they're going to deliver what, what it is they do to their ideal clients. So it's that foundational stuff which, you know, so many clients and therapists who are heart-centered, you know, very well-meaning, pretty good at what they do, but that's, you know, what they're missing, basically, that the whole before marketing piece, you know, the constructional foundational piece 
where they, where they build a blueprint for a thriving practice. And, uh, you know, what, what I've understood, what I've discovered in, you know, pretty much 20 years of doing this is that you can get to a six figure coaching practice. You can get to a hundred thousand a year. In some cases, way more than that, you know, to 200, 250 a year without paid advertising, just by holding intelligent conversations uh, with your ideal clients uh, in, in the right uh, in the right places, just going to where they hang out. Uh, you know, these days in Facebook groups, in LinkedIn, and to some extent face-to-face networking. But you know, and, until you've got all that foundational stuff nailed, and you know what it is you're doing, and who you're doing it for, um, th- th- there's no sense in paid advertising. You're just going to be wasting most of the money you're spending. Look, the key there is about networking and getting very good at networking, whether it's uh, on social media, whether it be it through Facebook or LinkedIn, or through face-to-face. Totally, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, your net worth is your network, as a wise man once said. And, uh, you know, your ability to talk about what you do in a simple, coherent way, you know, with devastating clarity. Um, is at the heart of everything coaches and, and trainers and therapists should be doing. Um, and so many people, when they're asked the question, what do you do? They just go waffling on. You know, and it's clear that they don't know themselves what it is they do. And I, I learned a very stark lesson some years ago, Leon, a, a networking meeting. I was face to face with uh, you know, a room full of people. And this guy wandered over with a glass of wine in his hand and, uh, you know, a cheese on a stick, you know, <laughs> and, and said to me, Johnny, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm a business coach. And this guy literally rolled his eyes, grimaced and said, oh, that's boring. And I went, wow. You know, my initial reaction was how rude, you know, <laughs> how do I kick back at this guy? But, you know, as I mulled on it, I thought to myself, you know, I'm telling people I'm a business coach. Maybe most people think that's boring. And even if they don't think it's boring, it's it doesn't say anything about what I do, does it? It doesn't say anything about the client outcomes that I get. It doesn't say anything about how I really help people, you know, what my superpower is. So, you know, with, with that lesson, I went home, tail between my legs kind of thing, and started to develop a real deep understanding of, you know, what I did, who it was for, and, you know, how I was going to deliver transformational change. And, you know, I, I put all that together. It took me three or four years to evolve it into, you know, the Johnny that I am now, you know, with the whole Johnny X marketing thing and, you know, working exclusively with coaches and trainers and therapists. Um, so now if somebody asks me, you know, Johnny, what do you do? I can say, you know, well, I, I work with professional coaches, trainers and therapists uh, to help them find more of their ideal clients more easily, you know, without paid advertising. But, Johnny, I have to ask you this. I mean, most people, a lot of people that I know anyway, are very mm. uncomfortable very uncomfortable networking. Okay. Um, they don't know how to network. There are very few people I know who are natural networkers. Mm. Um, and, and funnily enough, the most natural networkers I've met happen to be women. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, there is a bit in men where we're more afraid of failing, aren't we? You know, our ego won't allow us to um, have an unsuccessful experience, whether it's a networking conversation or, or anything else. But just to circle back on what you said, you know, most people are not good at networking. I think it's more fundamental than that. It's hard to network and it's hard to, to, to market if you've got nothing to market, if you've got nothing to network. 
And I think, you know, as I was five or six years ago, just strolling into a networking meeting with, you know, I'm a business coach in my head or, you know, even more general, I'm a coach, some people will say. Um, you know, that makes for lousy networking experiences, doesn't it? Because the person you're talking to is not energized by that statement. You know, they're not intrigued by it. They're not compelled by it. It doesn't make for, you know, a, a useful conversation. So if that's all you've got, Leon, you know, you're going to come away from all your networking experiences with with nothing more than you started with. And I think that's why people are hung up about networking. You know, if, if they're not making worthwhile statements and answering questions in a, in a in a compelling and interesting way so you know it, it comes all it all comes back to these three pillars you know what is it you do who's it for and how are you going to deliver it and if you if you can't talk to strangers about that then yeah i mean you're not going to be good at networking and it's it's always going to feel like you're rubbish at networking and so the bottom line is you actually need something that engages people that you can talk about Totally, yeah, 100%, 100%. I mean, I, I was at a networking meeting last week, actually. I, I've since had a further conversation with this guy, and we are making some progress. But I said to this guy, what do you do? And he literally said to me, Leon, hard to believe in, in 2018 that anybody would say this, but he said, oh, I do a bit of everything. Right. And I was like, well, okay, so a bit of everything like what? Well, you know, I, I do a bit of marketing. Uh, I do sales training. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm working with a client at the moment who uh, wants to uh, build his team and re recruit some more people. You know, so I, I just do a bit of everything, he said. And he was perfectly happy that that was his elevator pitch. You know, his one line, his networking go-to move was, I do a bit of everything. And that sort of stuff just doesn't cut it. You know, it does not stand up. It probably never has. But in a world where our attention spans are ever shrinking, you know, I mean, you've got to capture someone in three seconds on social media or with a website. Telling telling the world that you do a bit of everything is is next to useless, isn't it? Worse than useless. Well, Johnny, in a world where uh, most of us are working for ourselves, those are very valuable uh, comments and observations. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, great. I've I've really enjoyed it, Leon. It's uh, my pleasure, and I'll uh, I'll come back any time and tell you more about it. <laughs> and now let's talk to economist Saul Leslie. Uh, well, Saul Leslie, the Turnbull government is continuing to insist that its tax package must be considered as a job lot, and it will get through the Senate intact. And that's despite the obvious parliamentary resistance to the third tranche of reforms, which flattens the income tax scales and benefits high income earners. Uh, what's your view about this? Well, the government's political tactics are, I guess, a matter beyond my immediate analytical framework. Uh, they may well be prepared to compromise at some point in order to get the first tranche of their seven-year tax plan through the Senate, as they have previously been prepared to compromise over aspects of their corporate tax cuts in order to ensure that at least small to medium-sized enterprises benefit from it. And it would be hard to imagine that they would want to go to the next election, whatever it's called, without having something to offer to low to middle income households where most of the swinging voters are 
to be found unless the government really believes that it can win a philosophical argument with the Labor Party over the nature of uh, Australia's income tax scales and how progressive it ought to be. Um, some people in the coalition are obviously limbering up for that fight and think that they could win it. But to date, opinion polls suggest that that might be a hard argument to win with the majority of voters. Uh, the uh, Labor Party says uh, hammering the government on the costings of measures. They say they haven't been uh, put forward. Uh, Scott Morrison, however, is resisting it and saying uh, those figures would be unreliable. Well, this is a problem for serious analysts of the debate. I don't dispute the 13 or $14 billion figure that the budget papers put on the cost of the first stage of the income tax cuts for the four years to 21-22, the traditional forward estimates period. Of course, those tax cuts don't actually begin to hit the budget bottom line until the 2019-20 financial year because of the way that they have been structured as a tax offset rather than a reduction in the weekly, fortnightly or monthly instalments that are taken out of the beneficiaries' pay packets. Uh, then, uh, as was the case with the government's company tax package a couple of years ago, the full 10-year cost isn't disclosed in the budget papers, but instead is something dropped by the Treasurer in a press conference or, in the case of the company tax figures, by the head of the Treasury during a Senate Estimates Committee hearing. I think from the standpoint of transparency of the budget and the government's proposals, this is a pretty poor way to introduce what are very important figures into the public debate. And yes, of course, the Treasurer is right when he says there's a great deal of uncertainty attaching to figures over a 10-year period. But if he really believes that, why introduce them at all? Um, I don't think that's really an acceptable reason for not putting some estimates into the public domain in public documents. After all, the United States does this on a regular basis and has been doing so for more than 25 years. So I think we can do the same thing in Australia fairly easily. Uh, maybe this is something the Parliamentary Budget Office will be able to help people with when they finish crunching their numbers on the government's proposals. Uh, nonetheless, that would suggest that it's going to have a hard time getting through Parliament. Uh, well, that may be the case. Um, I'm not really in a position to speculate how independent and crossbench senators are likely to respond to the detail of the legislation when it is put before them um, at First blush, it might be a tall order, but there are some differences between the debate over the company income tax cuts, which the government hasn't been able to win in the Senate and certainly hasn't persuaded the broader Australian population that they're worth supporting. But in the case of personal income tax cuts, uh, the outcome may well be different. Time will tell, uh, and it may depend on the quality of the arguments put forward by the respective sides. Uh, the uh, On the company tax cuts, I mean, they are actually stalled in the Senate uh, uh, and they don't look like getting through. Uh, what's your view about that? 
Well, that's right. They don't look like getting through, although it may be that if the uh, two centre alliance senators, as those initially elected under the Nick Xenophon banner now call themselves, were to change their mind, that could perhaps allow the government to get its plan through the Senate. Uh, I don't really have any insight into how they're thinking, uh, but it would seem that the revelations coming out of the Royal Commission into banks and insurance companies certainly won't have helped persuade Darren Hinch or Tim Storer, two of the other holdouts against the government's corporate tax cut plans, to change their mind in the government's favour. Indeed, indeed. Now, uh, I know this is a political question, so this is out of the area of economics, but uh, we have the prospect of four by-elections in the wind, and that's going to, uh, that might change the political nature of whether these uh, tax cuts will get through. Well, it certainly won't change the composition of the Senate because under the uh, way the rules governing the replacement of senators uh, are concerned, they will be replaced by or the one departing senator, Katie Gallagher from the ACT, will be replaced by a Labor senator. And uh, if the government were to win one or two of the or possibly three of the five seats in the House of Representatives, which there will be by-elections at some point in the next couple of months, uh, then that won't affect their capacity to get things through the Senate, uh, and they have already got the power to get legislation through the House of Representatives as long as all of the National Party and the Liberal backbench supports it. Um, so the only impact that government victories at any of the seats up for grabs in these by-elections would have on their chance of getting the legislation through the Senate would be if a swing to the government changes the mind of some of the independent or cross-bench senators. Now, it's not clear to me that that will be the result, but uh, yeah, who knows? I mean, obviously what we're going to have between now and when those five by-elections are held is a forerunner of the argument that will run up to the next federal election whenever that's held as to... Uh, what sort of society we want to be and how progressive or otherwise our income tax system ought to be. I mean, there's a debate being set up here between those who think that the tax system ought to be steeply progressive, which Australia's income tax system certainly is by international standards, and those who think that the tax system ought to make greater allowance for people seeking to better their circumstances by, as the government would say, working hard or taking financial risk that make them better off in a material sense. And you know, ultimately, the right answer to that question is not one to be found in economics, but it's a matter of value judgments and political choice. So it's appropriate that it do be decided by the outcome of a democratic political process. In view of the public view of these uh tax cuts. I mean, there's interesting analysis from the Grattan Institute, which demonstrates that the top 20% of income earners will benefit most from the tax plan that uh, Scott Morrison outlined in the budget last Tuesday. 
That's right. And to a significant extent, any major changes to Australian tax scales are always going to produce proportionately bigger benefits to those at the top of the income tax scale, simply because Australia's tax system is, as I said before, quite steeply progressive by international standards. I mean, as things stand at the moment, 3% of Australian taxpayers in the top tax bracket, those with taxable incomes of over $180,000 per annum, earn about 18% of the taxable income, but pay just over 30% of all of the personal income tax paid. Uh, my concern with the personal income tax system is not that those people ought to be paying even more tax than they presently are, but rather with the amount of income that's earned by, in particular, people whose total income might be in excess of $180,000, but are able to exploit various uh, forms of preferential treatment to certain types of income or certain forms of business organisation or particular saving and investment vehicles to pay less than the top marginal rate on that income. So I have long been a favour of broadening the base of income tax by reducing the preferential treatment that's given to particular types of income or particular types of taxpayers, and where possible, lowering the rates so as to, among other things, reduce the incentives to engage in that kind of uh, tax minimisation, legal or otherwise, though it might be. Where that leaves me is that I support the proposals the Labor Party has made with regard to negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount with regard to the tax treatment of trusts and with regard to the provision of cash rebates for franking credits that can't otherwise be offset against taxable income. But I'm completely opposed to the Labor Party's proposal to raise the top rate of income tax from 45 to 47% or to 49%, including the Medicare levy. And I have some sympathy with the government's desire to raise the threshold at which the top personal income tax rate currently becomes payable. You know, there's a chart in the budget papers which makes it clear that Australia's top income tax rate is yeah, not outrageously high by international standards, but fairly high. Uh, but more particularly, it comes cuts in at an income that's relatively low by international standards. So by comparison with Australia's top tax threshold of 180000 for example, in Canada, you don't pay the top rate of tax, whatever it is, depending on which province you live in, until your taxable income is uh, somewhat over 200000 Australian dollars at current exchange rates. You don't pay the top tax rate of 46% in Britain until your income exceeds 300000 Australian dollars current exchange rates, and you don't pay the top rate in the United States, which again varies from state to state depending on where you live, but the thresholds are determined federally, you don't pay the top federal, you don't pay the top rate of income tax in the United States until as a single taxpayer, your income exceeds the equivalent of 600,000 Australian dollars, or part of a married couple filing jointly until your income exceeds 300,000 Australian dollars. So uh, by international standards, there is a good case for raising the threshold at which the top rate of income tax is payable. Yes, that does proportionately mean that there will be uh, 
increase there will be a bigger gain to people in the top tax bracket if that is adjusted but under the government's proposals the tax system will still be progressive people in the top tax bracket will pay tax which is higher than those of people well below the scale by a multiple um, they will pay proportionately more in income tax than someone on, say, $40,000 a year or 60000 or or $100,000 a year. The debate really is about how progressive the tax system should be. And I would argue also about the extent to which the tax rates that are in the tax schedule should be paid on all of a taxpayer's income, which at the moment they're not. Well, Saul, so like, that's going to be, mean a very interesting political debate and we'll be watching it with great interest. Thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me as always. So what's been happening in the news? Well, Reserve Bank of Australia Deputy Governor Guy DeBell has foreshadowed a tightening in lending standards, increasing housing risk. At the same time, he indicated that the RBA was in no hurry to raise interest rates. Nonetheless, Mr DeBell told the CFO Forum that he expected the RBA to keep rates steady for the time being. This coincides with the minutes of the RBA board meeting released this week which showed that Australia's central bank saw little reason to lift rates this month with inflation below target and likely to remain subdued in the face of sluggish wage growth. Apart from trade tensions, China and US-driven inflation driving up global interest rates, Mr DeBell said another big risk that wages growth would remain lower than first thought. He also warned that US President Donald Trump's debt-funded fiscal stimulus might have parallels to the late 1960s era that presaged nearly two decades of rampant inflation and skyrocketing interest rates. Speaking as a three-month US Treasury yield surpassed the yield on the benchmark S&P 500 for the first time since the 2008 crisis, he said the US was deploying a large amount of debt-funded stimulus in an economy already close to full employment. And Scott Morrison's third federal budget is the best received in years. But most consumers don't think it will leave them better off financially. The findings of Westpac's Consumer Sentiment Survey back up political polls that have generally shown the budget to be well received. Westpac's report judged the reception of the budget by looking at responses to its survey before last Tuesday night and then responses from those surveyed from Wednesday onwards. When asked what impact people thought the budget would have on their family finances over the next year, just over 10% expected an improvement, but 19% expected a deterioration and 58% anticipated no change. Overall, consumer confidence declined from 102.4 in April to 101.8 in May, a reading that shows there are still more optimists and pessimists, but continuing a recent downward trend this year. Expectations about the economy for the next 12 months, though, remain positive. Still, expectations for family finances are flat. Moreover, family finances over the past year have continued to deteriorate, dropping 6.5% over the past month to 83, below long-term averages and the lowest reading since September last year. At the same time, wages in Australia grew by just 0.5% leaving wages growth for the year at a steady 2.1%. This missed expectations for an increase of 0.6%. Reserve Bank of Australia Deputy Governor Guy DeBell said in a speech this week there was a risk it might take a lower unemployment rate than currently expected to generate a pick-up in wages. 
The wage rises were driven by increases in the education and training and health care and social assistance industries. The Australian Bureau of Statistics figures show private sector wages grew by just 1.9%, and that's the same pace as consumer price inflation over the same period, and that means real wages for most workers weren't rising at all. Public sector wages rose higher, lifting by 2.3% over the year. Now, the Turnbull government has asked the Australian Energy Regulator to investigate claims electricity network companies are price-gouging customers to help pay their corporate tax liabilities. While electricity networks and regulated gas pipelines receive an allowance as part of a revenue determination process to cover their tax bills, analysis by the Australian Taxation Office between 2013 and 2016 has found some companies might be claiming up to three times more than they should. Now, the shares of Australia's biggest telco, Telstra, hit a seven-year low this week following a big drop on Monday after the company said its earnings for the current financial year would, become, would come in at the bottom end of guidance, between $10.1 billion and $10.6 billion. The company's shares fell 4.9% to $2.87 on Tuesday, as analysts warned there were no obvious solutions to the problems faced by the telcos. Telstra's earnings and share price are falling because of price competition and the negative impact of the national broadband network rollout on its earnings. Only three years ago, Telstra was trading above $6. In his speech to the TMT conference, Telstra CEO Andy Penn said Telstra now expected FY18 EBITDA to be at the bottom end of that year's guidance and the challenging trade conditions in FY18 would continue in FY19 including pressure on mobile and fixed average revenue per user and the accelerating impact of the MBN. So Telstra's income is now expected to be around the middle of its 27.6 to $29.5 billion range. Mr Penn reassured investors, however, that Telstra's dividend would be $0.22 cents fully franked and revenue is expected to be around the middle of the 27.6 to $29.5 billion range and free cash flow would be near the top, perhaps even above its $4.2 to $4.7 billion guidance. Mr Penn said Telstra will continue to focus on reducing costs. He expects costs to reduce by approximately 7%. He said that while he's optimistic about the long term of the industry and for Telstra, the big concern is about the short term. Now, higher oil prices, the US corporate tax cut, and positive results from recent well trials have helped generate a supportive environment for the sale of BHP's onshore US shale oil and gas assets, according to BHP boss Andrew McKenzie. He told investors and mining industry leaders at a major US mining conference that BHP had made good progress with its plan to exit the US onshore business, reiterating that the move was the right thing to do to maximise both value and return. Now, Commonwealth Bank Chief Financial Officer Rob Jasudison has resigned in the latest change to the bank's senior ranks. Alan Doherty has been appointed acting CFO while the bank undertakes an internal and external search for a replacement. CBA said Mr Jasudison resigned to pursue an external role in Hong Kong. Mr Jasudison's departure comes at a tumultuous time for CBA. The bank in March announced institutional boss Kelly Bayer-Rosemarin, technology chief David Whiting and human resources executive Melanie Lang would all depart, leaving CBA chief executive Matt Komen with several major appointments to make in his early days as CEO. 
As well as these departures, Mr Coman must find a replacement for his current position as Head of Retail Banking, CBA's largest division, and a leader to run its wealth operations after the departure of Annabelle Spring last year. Mr Coman is taking on the job of running CBA as the bank faces explosive allegations of repeatedly breaching terror financing laws and the bank and its rivals are also under fierce scrutiny from the Royal Commission into Financial Misconduct. Now, women's wear retailer Specialty Fashion will sell its Mills, Katie's, Crossroads, Autograph and Rivers brands to arch-rival Noni B for $31 million in cash, but it will retain its most profitable brand, City Chic. The deal follows a seven-month strategic review, during which time Specialty Fashion considered selling its entire business, or selling individual brands, or raising capital to shore up its balance sheet. Now, Dana EDI has been awarded a contract worth about $150 million to build a solar farm in regional New South Wales. The contract was awarded by First Solar and tasks the industrial services giant to provide engineering procurement and construction services to build the Beryl Solar Farm, which will produce energy to run about 25,000 average New South Wales homes, displacing more than 167,000 metric tonnes of carbon dioxide. The solar farm located in the state's central tablelands, will generate electricity with no water use, no air emissions and no waste production. First Solar is a leading global provider of photovoltaic solar systems and its power plant solutions deliver alternatives to fossil fuel electricity generation. Agribusiness Rural Co has lifted first half profit 29% to 16.1 million despite tough trading conditions in the live export business. Net profit for the six months to March rose on the back of stronger performances by its rural services, water services and financial services units, but underlying gross profits from its live export business slipped 86%. And finally, New Zealand dairy company A2 Milk says it's expected full-year revenues to rise more than 63% after a surge in the first nine months of the financial year. Revenue for the 12 months to June is expected to be between New Zealand 900 million and New Zealand 920 million. That's about 845 million Australian, compared to New Zealand 549.5 million the previous year. A2 Milk said revenue for the nine months to March 31 was 660 million New Zealand dollars, up 70% from last year on the back of strong sales growth in its nutritional products and liquid milk. And the sales growth also reflects the impact of seasonal change from China selling events, waiting towards the first half of the financial year. And that's it for this week. And next week we have a terrific interview with Doug Stevenson from Decurman, who manages people's careers. In the meantime, you can keep up with me on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 